Hello and welcome to the next edition of this Harrington Star podcast. Whether it's Fintech Focus TV you're listening to or our diversity and inclusion specials, we hope you're enjoying the shows and please do subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Women of Fintech podcast series. We're here today to celebrate the wins, raise awareness of the challenges, and walk the walk for change across the entire industry. Um, today, I have Kate Gray. Um, she is the director of Number 41. She's here today to share her journey. And more importantly, she's a transformation and innovation consultant, coach, and trainer for ambitious leaders. So all you ambitious leaders out there need to be listening and listening well, ready to write down your notes. Um, Kate, thank you very much for joining me today. Very pleased to be here. Um, so what I thought would be really nice, um, so that you are able to give us your insights into real learning, which I know is what you stand for, is perhaps you start with your background, because it's been quite varied. It has. You're very kind to ask. And it all started a long, long time ago in Washington, D.C., where I graduated from university and said, I just want to go work in Washington. And, and I guess from there, <laughs> I had an amazing experience because I was probably the youngest person and indeed often the only woman in the room. Yeah. And I landed in a series of jobs that had me working with CEOs of major corporations worldwide. Amazing. So I was able to observe what happens at that level of an organization mm -hmm. when I was very young. I then uh, did a number of, of different things while I was in Washington still, including a brief stint at a rehabilitation hospital for spinal cord injuries, which had me working with the daughter of the President of the United States and wow. walking into the White House and hearing, Mom, Dad, I'm home. It was just amazing. Yeah. But yeah. that's probably a little off our focus <laughs> today. So then I went back to Los Angeles, which is where the accent's from, and uh, ended up getting involved in a post-riot recovery that came together with government and the private sector. And that began a series of really extraordinary uh, jobs, roles, pieces of work that I had, because that again allowed me to observe what was going on at city and state leadership and federal leadership in the United States, as well as CEOs of all the major companies in Los Angeles, which included Walt Disney and, and large oil companies and financial services companies. Mm. Then from there, I went to work for a very interesting gentleman who had a global reputation in finance and structuring deals. Again, the things that I observed, the things I was able to learn, the things I was able to do, mm. even though I was quite young. After that, I went into brand strategy and marketing strategy, which is now an old-fashioned term. I think today in digital, you'd call that more sort of product strategy and things, mm. really understanding your customers and why they would want to buy what you have. That then led to a job that brought me over here. I've been in the UK now for 20 years and had me working predominantly with technology startups, with investors, with uh, sort of private equity, some sort of different types of investment mm. structures, and with their teams, as well as being part of their teams. Uh, some of my favorite roles were being asked, I was quite flattered, I was being asked by the chairman to go into a global recruitment agency. So I have a very small understanding ding, of your ding. world. <laughs> but I had a wonderful time working across 140 countries. And, yeah, and again, really learning to respect the value of what different people with different backgrounds and different experiences bring in mm. to a discussion about how to grow a business yeah. and how to do it successfully and with good ethics. Yeah, and I think everything that you've just spoke about, it's so relevant to today's technology marketplace because that diversity of thought, that that varied background, being able to look at things from a different point of view, it's, it's right on the tip of everyone's tongues at the moment. So your mantra is life is about learning. I really wanted you to tell us a bit more about that. So I 
I have had this sort of insatiable curiosity my entire yeah. life. But it meant that when I was younger and I was going through the education system, I didn't have to try very hard to do okay. I was quite fortunate and I do realize that. But that made me think that, oh, I wasn't that interested in learning. And then I entered the world of work. And as I described those early jobs and the environments I found myself in, I was fascinated by understanding what worked well and what didn't. And obviously sort of took a passion about how to build consensus, how to help people use their voices. But then life goes on, I keep learning, I love it. I, I am not someone who recommends reading lots of books. I'm actually one of those old fashioned practitioners mm -hmm. who says just get in there and try. And that can be very scary. And then I decided to do the craziest, scariest thing of all, which was to go back and get a master's of science at uh, Birkbeck University in cognitive psychology and computational models. And it would have seemed logical if once in my entire life I might have studied either of those topics. <laughs> yeah. And indeed, the gentleman to whom I applied said, I, I'm not sure this is the right program for you. We can't see that you've ever studied these things. So I kind of blagged my way in nice. and have spent the last six months truly experiencing how scary it is to be faced with something that you genuinely do not know anything about, that you have no background in, that you really have to apply yourself to in a way that I hadn't had to do in work for a long time. Yeah. And I loved it. And I, I hope that many people, when they take on a new task, enjoy that thing that I finally did after six months where I kind of woke up and realized I'm getting this. Mm. I'm getting it and I'm learning it in a way that, that works for me, works for the quality of my studies, but really made it come alive. Mm. And that's why I think um, one can always learn, I can confirm this mm. from my recent studies, that, <laughs> yeah. that all of those myths about getting older and not being able to learn are deeply untrue. Mm. That the brain's capacity to make new connections and to learn new things goes on mm. pretty much forever, as long as you're fortunate and you have a healthy brain. But wow, yes, learning keeps us interested, keeps us um, passionate, keeps us focused mm. on things. And I think it also helps if you're starting to feel a bit down and a bit unsure about yourself, tackling something and learning it is a nice way to pull yourself mm. out of that sense of self-doubt. Feel good factor, right? I, I feel it, but uh, it was hard. Yeah, so, yeah, of course. So yeah. were you to talk to some of my friends, they'd say, yeah, she's, she might be sugarcoating it a bit. It's, it is very scary and very unsettling yeah. when you go through something and you realize, I genuinely don't know anything and I'm starting from scratch. Yeah. But I found admitting that to myself and just stopping and saying, you're bright, you've learned things in the past, calm down, mm. start over, look at it carefully. Those things helped me get back into the right frame of mind. Yeah, and I love that you've said that because one of the questions we wanted to ask are what are the, the, the main challenges of learning? And I think you've touched upon some of that already. Um, so I've got a hashtag that I put on everything and everything I talk to the people at work about is, um, the hashtag is get better every day. So one of the values of our businesses is Kaizen, which is the Japanese word for small incremental improvements and give it a year, you'll look back and go, wow, how, look how much I've changed. So I'm really passionate about learning too, but I think when people come on a podcast or they talk about themselves, you're, you're right, your friends talk about, oh, you sugarcoat and you just say the end, the end result. And we do that as humans, human beings, rather than wait a second, actually this was years of work or six months worth of dedication, tireless dedication to get you to your goal. Um, so back over to you, what other challenges would you say there are with learning and learning every day? Well, I think first and foremost, if, if you have a job and you have a life, 
then the idea of quality time is going to be one of the biggest challenges. I, I have realized after this six-month slightly insane adventure that the idea of doing it quickly or in small batches actually doesn't work well. Yeah. So, so again, there'll be some things that you can do that with. Yeah. But I think it's giving yourself permission to stop and say, I want to do this well. This is going to take a lot. You have to ask yourself honestly, can you find that time? Mm. Uh, if you can, then just go for it and become quite precious about it. My, uh, my network of friends, my partner, they were all extremely enthusiastic about this. And indeed, they had more confidence in me than I had. And as a result, they enabled me to say, no, I can't do that. No, I'm going to pull out of things because you will have to do that. Mm -hmm. So that, I think, is one of the largest challenges. I think the second one is, and I have done this my entire life, so it wasn't just in the last six months. The more comfortable a person can become, the more comfortable I became in redefining my definition of success, the more likely I was to give myself a break, give myself a chance, and be grateful for those small little increments of improvement. Mm -hmm. When I started, again, just to use the most recent example, when I started this degree, I thought I could approach it the same way I had when I was in university a while ago. Mm -hmm. And what I discovered was that, wow, so not true. Because I didn't want to just get by. I didn't want to just get through it. I actually wanted to master this. And, and I had to pull back and realize that, my grades were going to suffer. I wasn't going to be particularly high in the class, but I would have the satisfaction of knowing that I was actually learning something and able to apply mm. it. So, so I, I kind of stumbled on that in conversations with other people, that, that willingness to redefine what you call success, what you call, you know, what you feel is important. Mm. And I'm beginning to sense that I've probably done it many times in my life, and it's probably one of the best survival techniques that no one taught me. I just figured out because I always threw that process of saying, okay, so maybe it would be great to be the highest paid or the most important or this like that, but wow, look at, look at the compromises. Mm -hmm. That is one of the advantages of my early career. I watched how these perceived people of power and great wealth how they lived their lives. Mm -hmm. And they didn't have a lot of things that I thought were important, like time for friends, time for working out, time for just kind of relaxing and enjoying life. So that might be a little bit of a sort of muddled answer, but I do think those two things are really important yeah. when you want to learn is giving yourself time and realizing it takes time, but then also being sort of fair to yourself yeah. and not being disappointed if you aren't at some amazing level short or long period of time, just be fair yeah. and realise that where you are is a good thing. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely perfect for, for, for what we've been talking about on the phone in preparation to this around people in their careers and choosing the right cultural environment for themselves. Um, so we, we spoke earlier um, about some people being able to thrive in one environment and, and others not. And, and you, you're very passionate about people having having the option and seeing that it, within their lives nothing's insurmountable as long as you're in that that right organisation. Could you tell us a bit more about that? So I, I think I mentioned earlier in my various jobs that I just got to see a lot of different things and often I was the only woman in the room and at that mm. time a very young woman. And it, it becomes... I have a lot of sympathy and empathy for people who find themselves in a really unpleasant situation. And I think it becomes very important that people just pause and begin to think about what, what are the causes of that. Mm -hmm. Because oftentimes you can find that communication just isn't very good and people aren't really comfortable talking about the things that matter. 
but then they might do something kind of easy, like some sort of exercise, not a forced fun one, please. There's, <laughs> there's no, this accent may originate from North I America, but it's, yeah, like, it's yeah. 20 years in but this I'll country. I'll put a smile on my face and I'll pretend I'm loving it, but, it, <laughs> but really I don't. Yeah, and it, and it doesn't work. It doesn't yeah. do what you want. So I think what I'm talking about, I'll, I'll tell a story. I, I became involved with the agility, the sort of agile way of working that mm -hmm. also embraces lean principles mm -hmm. and, and what you're embracing here. Mm -hmm. And I participated in a retrospective, but it was a really good one. And it was a team of about 30 people that had completely lost their way. They all spoke badly of each other. Each little section had broken off and there was a lot of fighting. And a gentleman who already worked at the organization, but had spent a lot of time looking at different ways of dealing with this, ran this retrospective and invited me to work with a small group. And at the end of three hours, and I'm not exaggerating, I'd say 75% of the huge systemic problems that were making this team talk badly about each other and, and almost to a degree sabotage each other's work through the course of this software development had been surfaced and had been discussed. And I watched all these people say, oh, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about it that way. I hadn't seen it that way. Mm -hmm. And so, so I think that becomes really important when you're evaluating the place where you are. Can that sort of thing happen? Can the difficulties that you're observing or that you're feeling, can they be addressed through communication? Yeah. But then also, I think another thing that becomes really important, and this is the advantage of being a young woman in a room at a time when, quite frankly, members of the United States Congress were not held to sexual harassment or any sort mm. of harassment laws, I, I was able to learn very quickly how to protect myself. But not everyone's like me. So, so again, when I'm working with leaders, the point I make to them is, it is your responsibility to observe, mm. not just to talk and give orders. That's like the least responsibility. Mm. That's so not important these days. But to observe because you may have people who are really suffering yeah. and they don't know what to do. I've heard some nightmare stories over the course of my life and I was very fortunate. Those things didn't happen to me, but they are real. And mm. so I, I would never want to imply that, oh, you can just be tough and deal with it. You do mm -hmm. want to make sure that your executives are paying attention to these things mm -hmm. if that happens to be the sort of situation yeah. that you're in. Yeah, and, um, and we've spoken about your interesting thoughts around high-performing teams and different dimensions to that. Obviously, observation being one, trying to see uh, two, trying to see from somebody's point of view, trying to see the difference. What are, what other dimensions do you consider for a high performing team? Forgive me. I, early in my career, I had the most amazing mentor, and mm. I probably rely on his harsh but yeah. thoughtful comments about how I worked more than anything else. And one of the first things he said to me, uh, he he put me into a role, and he said, "Let's be clear. I want you to listen for the first six weeks." And I genuinely didn't appreciate how hard that is. And now with my cognitive psychology studies, I really appreciate how hard that yeah, is. Yeah. Our brain doesn't want to do that. Our brain wants to make decisions. It wants to jump in. It wants to have opinions. But wow, listening and observing, which let's face it, if you look at Hollywood films or you read books about heroes, you don't often hear them doing that. But that's what you need to do. You need to stop and you need to become aware of the situation. If you're walking into a crisis, which I have, you, you may find that your listening and your observing 
takes on a slightly different approach because you might need to get information quickly, you might need to help reassure people, you might need to give them things to do. So again, it's never one size fits all. Of course. But at the same time, if you walk into a crisis situation and you believe that you have the answer, then you're already at a disadvantage. Yeah. So yeah. those are two. And then I think the third one is one that I find really interesting. Again, it's a lot about self-reflecting. Be aware of the people that you are drawn to. Be aware of the people that you quickly believe you can, quote, rely on or trust or anything. And challenge yourself to go beyond, because these are instinctive things. There is more and more science behind this. These are instinctive reactions that our brain does, because like it or not, this brain hasn't evolved much since the day that we had to survive and get away from you know, animals that might want to eat mm -hmm. us instead of us eating them. So, so that being said, those would probably be today the three that I think are most important. And the third one is incredibly hard because I, I myself have said this and I hear people say it all the time. Yeah, but I really need to know this is done well. I know I can trust them. I can rely on them. It's like, don't do that because when you fall into that pattern, you have no idea. Again, I go back to this first mentor. He said, don't tell me about the problems. Tell me about the stars yeah. that no one can see. Tell me about the amazing potential that's there. So if you really train yourself to say, I'm going to be on the lookout for this and I'm not going to rely on the ones that feel right, mm. you'll be surprised what you find. It's um, sort of training yourself so that you can be higher performing to allow others to be higher performing, it sounds. I'd, I'd Listening, say that. because observation, if, yeah. If you're not self-aware, it's really hard for you to claim that you are capable of being aware. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think that's really powerful stuff. So I wanted to sort of move on to something a bit more general around the diversity and inclusion debate within um, the technology or financial services industry from the background and from the knowledge that you have and what you've seen. So uh, I have the good fortune of being able to participate in a number of tech conferences and it goes into that category of things that really appall me. What I hear young women talk about what I hear happening to them. Uh, it reminds me of my early days in politics. The insults were the same, the topic was just different. Now, the good news is I also spend a lot of time with men and women in different technology companies who are doing everything in their power to not let that happen. Mm -hmm. So I, it would be honest, I think, to to make the claim that there's still a long way to go. Mm -hmm. Better than 10 years ago, mm -hmm. but still a long way to go. And what is it gonna take? You didn't ask that question, but I'm gonna anticipate it. <laughs> I, I think we have the benefit of new generations. New generations always bring change. So when I think about the people when I was young that I worked with, yeah, they were lovely. I learned a lot from them, but some of them, I'm really glad they're out of the workforce. Yeah. And I'm sure there are people in their 20s and 30s who just can't wait until people in their 50s and 60s say goodbye. And, and with that generation change comes a different set of priorities and a different approach to things. Mm -hmm. So I think that, that will definitely benefit everyone. But in the short term, for anyone that's applying for work, for anyone that's looking to change careers or go to slightly, something slightly different, I suppose my, my basic recommendation would be prepare for your interview with two or three questions that based on the way their body language and their answer comes and resonates with you, decide 
how interested you are in this firm. Mm. Obviously, I wouldn't see much value in asking questions like, how do you deal with you know, harassment issues? Because mm. no one's going to say anything but the best if they want your talent. Mm. But you can think of really different questions. You can ask them, how did they, how did they personally react the last time they were attached to a team that failed? Mm. Things like that. And, and it's as much the body language as it is what someone says. What you're looking for is trying to understand if this is an environment that doesn't judge people harshly because you're hoping that would extend to gender as well. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a hit and miss. Mm. You'll never get it perfectly right. Uh, but, but these are at least ways that one can try to surface these things. And you always have things like Glassdoor and, and other places. But I, I try to have as many first-hand conversations. In fact, I prefer organizations that have a long, drawn-out recruitment process where you're meeting a lot of different people because it gives you a chance to get a feel for how people react if you have these two or three similar questions that you keep asking and then you get to see how it actually lives in that firm. Mm. That's so interesting because um, as a recruiter myself and, and Harrington Star, we're, we, we're recruitment, we ask questions more than once to see if the answers match up, if they're the same, and also to, to, to follow someone on an emotional journey through an interview process. Yes. Because some in interviewers will be more passionate than others, and they'll present a company in a different way. So you could have this fantastic company that you know is going to be an absolute perfect fit for somebody in terms of culture and how they'll learn and how excited they'll be day in day out but someone will communicate that brilliantly and someone won't yes I think it's really important to be aware of all of that as well um, so I've really enjoyed everything that you've been saying what is next on the horizon for you well, I decided to take this degree because I probably, again, that insatiable curiosity, I don't see a life of retirement and travel and things like that. I love to be in the world of work. So the passion that is coming out of this is for artificial intelligence, which in the engineering world is much more called machine learning. So I am studying the algorithms, I'm studying the concepts behind it. I'm currently applying it in a psychology environment. So the question of ethics is addressed by the fact that you wouldn't do this to a human, so why would you have a machine do it? And I see myself going back into a tech company mm. that has a really strong machine learning product base mm. and, and just enjoying where tech takes us. Mm. Because if I can just make one plug for learning, I would encourage people to never be complacent when it comes to technology. Mm. The things that we read about that sound so scary and so out of our control that's why I wanted to understand how a machine learning algorithm is written and how it's applied. Mm -hmm. And honestly, yeah, it was six tough months, but I never studied much in the way of maths and I get it. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean I sit with the physicists at lunch and we trade stories and we write math problems together, but I get it. Mm -hmm. So I am looking forward to being a commercial voice at a table mm -hmm. that at least could turn to anyone and say, so show me the algorithm and explain the weighting structure based on the data that you're planning to use. Mm. Then I can go back after, show me the training results with that data. And, and the more everyone understands that these things are not magic, there is no mystical property. These are human beings writing code, and mm. code is actually quite easy to get your hands around if you spend a couple of hours really committing to understand it. Mm then I think the fear of technology will go a little bit to the side. And what you'll realize is technology used bad is just by bad people. And like it or not, we've always had bad people. Yeah. But technology can be an amazing force for good. Yeah. That's so exciting to hear you talk like that because 
I think the whole technology industry has changed so much over the years and I love it that um, the communication aspect has become so important, the in innovative aspect, that transformation that you talk and, and stand for. So everyone listening, thank you very much to, uh, to listening to Kate Gray's story. If you want to look at things from a different point of view, if you want to improve your communication, if you want to always be learning and if you truly want to question yourself and make yourself better, you must get in touch with her. Kate, thank you very much for joining me. Very, very happy to be here. Thank you so much for your time.